Listener Production. I'm Action Alexa, former college American football player and wrestler turned half Ironman competitor. I've overcome alcoholism and managed to die on the operating table four times. And now I'm a strength coach and motivational speaker. And I'm Jenna Louise, an ex-competitive gymnast and BMX racer, now a multidisciplined, high-performance athlete and coach. Over the course of our careers within the fitness industry, we've seen firsthand the impact that physical strength and mental toughness can have in changing the course of people's lives. In our podcast, How Fitness Saved My Life, we invite people to share the stories and practical skills of how they built their physical, mental and emotional fitness and how that saved them at the hardest time of their life. This earthquake triggered a giant avalanche and within three seconds, this wall of snow hit our base camp and I'm thinking, I'm not going to be able to get out of this. Our guest today is Alyssa Azar, a mountain climber who conquered Kokoda at eight years old, the Aussie 10 Peaks at 10, Kilimanjaro at 14. And if that wasn't enough, at 19, she became the youngest ever female Australian to summit Everest. But even though Alyssa was a lifelong climber and physically fit, Everest threw up a huge challenge for her. During the climb, she got trapped in an avalanche and found herself having to call on her training to save her own life. And today, we're very excited to learn what she did to survive this ordeal and what skills we can adopt in our lives in order to stay calm in the worst situations. She is literally Dora the Explorer in human form. <laughs> this is Alyssa Azar. Welcome, Alyssa. Thank you. Happy to be here. <laughs> let's start right at the beginning because that's always a great mm-hmm. place to start. And let's talk about the fact that you are eight years old. Yep. When I was eight years old, my idea of fun was literally like, toddling along on my little bike, you know, potentially still with training wheels or riding my pony across the paddock. And here you are going, you know what? I think it'd be really fun to do this 96-kilometre trek across some of the toughest terrain in the world. How about that? I bet your school friends were like, cool, that sounds fun. Can I come to play? Yeah, that's pretty much how it happened. Maybe not. I literally was like, I've got this idea and just just went with it. And it was funny. I didn't expect it to happen for years um, when I first mentioned it to my dad because I had to get him on board to go on the trip and it took a while. But yeah, I, I just loved the training. I was actually so into it. It just, I, I loved a lot of sports when I was younger. And then there was something about the trekking and the hills that I just totally got into. Yeah. I was around a lot of people who had done it. And yeah. so I think I was like, okay, so it's achievable, but I'd heard how tough it was. But yeah, just, I, I remember sort of negotiating with my dad. I had this <laughs> idea. I think I was like, I was six when I first took an interest in it. I was fascinated oh by it and um, very adventurous. And all these people, would just rave about how great the trip was and all the stuff that they got to do. And, yeah, a couple of years of harassing my dad uh, and he finally went, all right, fine, I'll, I'll give you an opportunity. But uh, I remember this conversation. He said, you've got to do a year-long training plan. And he thought, there's no way you're going to finish that. You'll be bored in a week. <laughs> but, no, I was like, I just took that and ran with it. So literally did this year-long training plan and I don't think he'd expect that he'd have to take me. And then, yeah, we ended up going to Kokoda. So it was just oh, the most surreal experience. There's so many things that come to mind for me right then sitting there listening to that as <laughs> thinking of being you as an eight-year-old girl and I'm like, 
Firstly, oh my gosh, what a massive step for your father. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like I look at it now and think props to him for actually going through with it because oh, what a strong a human. Of, yeah, a lot of I parents would be like, where yeah, you get okay, it from. <laughs> like whatever. But would have been like, I have created a monster. Literally. Absolutely. <laughs> I once heard him do another interview and he said, he's like, I've learned with Alyssa, you just get on board or you get out of the way. <laughs> he described you and he said, Oh, no. <laughs> He said she has always been the person that has bit off way more than she could chew and yet she's chewed the hell out of it. I was like, I thought it was achievable. (laughs) What did you, like, at eight years old, what do you remember as being the hardest part of that track? Mm. You know what's funny? I actually really remember the first day um, being the toughest because you haven't, like, you do get your rhythm after a few days and you learn to, like, break it into chunks and not get too far ahead of yourself because it's just literally, it's so much steeper than anything in Australia. Like I've never experienced anything like that up until then. Like there's just nothing here that compares and it's hours upon hours of just uphills that seem like they'll never end. And I remember the first day, like you, there's nerves as well. You don't know what you're walking into. Yeah. And it was just scorching heat, like you're in the jungles of Papua New Guinea. And on the first day, we didn't have any like canopy yet. You're not like under it. So it was just like you felt the full heat of it and it's humid over there. And I remember all of that hitting me at once. And then you're sort of going, what did I sign up for? (laughs) Um, And props to my dad for the training program because he understood like you don't know what you're walking into. So as much as I can possibly prepare you for that, then I'll get you ready. So yeah, definitely that first day was tough. But after that, I really like came good. And um, I liked each and every day there was this challenge that I got to take on. But I remember the first day being the toughest. And how long did it take you to So do it? it takes eight days yep. to cross Kokoda and that's eight to nine hours of trekking a day. And as an eight-year-old, how much are you carrying? I wasn't carrying much, so I literally would have, I had a little day pack with water, snacks, and then most people tend to get a porter for all of your tents and group stuff like that. Yeah. And part of your training that your dad would have put you through would have been, you know, walking in the kit and the boots. and exactly. You're breaking. I think I wore pretty much the exact same thing that I was going to wear on the trip and we'd slowly build up the hikes. And I think before we left, we were doing three, four-hour hikes and trying to do that in the middle of the day to (laughs) Replicate the heat and things like that. So that was most of my weekends. I just say that, I mean, like, the way you speak about that, there is so much emotional maturity that comes from just being eight (laughs) years old. Like, I didn't even think about, you know, processing any of that type of stuff when I was eight years old. Literally, it was about friends coming to your house and being like, come out to play. I mean, I can't even imagine. Yeah, it definitely changed me um, as well. Like, I felt this difference when you come back. Once you've had that experience, no, you've grown. Um, So your perception about the world is totally different. And I often wonder out of interest what life would have been like if I didn't have (sighs) those experiences because I... I kind of had these two parts to my life where I had the adventure side, but then my day-to-day life was really normal. It was like suburbs. I went to an all-girls private school in Toowoomba where I grew up and before that, my days were literally hanging out with my siblings, riding bikes, and, like, it was totally normal. And then all of a sudden, because of Kokoda, it was, like, life-changing. And so how was school for you in that respect, you know, fitting in, how you communicate with other people of your age, like, all of those things would have definitely have come into account and be somewhat of a challenge for you. Yeah, it was a challenge after that, to be honest. And even when I was in the training for Kokoda and things like that, you know, I was around a lot of adults. That kind of became my normal peer group now. I spent as much time with people who were 20 plus years older than me um, as well as people my age. So, 
Yeah, I definitely think it it changed my life path after that, you know, in good and bad ways, but it was definitely hard to sort of fit back into the norm when I got back to school. So it wasn't too bad in primary school. I found that more of a challenge later on. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so your experiences in school, once you got back from, you know, the trek and stuff like that, was that a catalyst for you to then continue to push yourself to go for the next one? It was because, like I said, once you've done that, you've done it and you've had that experience and it's changed you a little bit. You've got the bug. Yeah, you do. (laughs) And that feels more like life to you than just the day-to-day. That's the best way to describe it, I think. And I felt like... I just want to keep going down this path and and there's something here with this. Um, That's so cool. For sure. yeah. I mean, both your parents were in the army, right? They were. I had the yeah. same thing. So my, yes. I'm a military brat, so <laughs> yeah. my dad met my mum in the army. Same, and yeah. <laughs> do you feel like, because you had that amount of emotional maturity and resilience, it seemed like, and just this intrinsic motivation, mm. do you feel like being part of that sort of extended military family and having that already in your blood that was something that you carried with you right from the beginning? Because we often talk about like how do you build resilience, but for you was it kind of that you were innately knew that no matter what happened right from the beginning, you just weren't going to quit? Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, and I think that came from both of my parents. Um, our household was very military household when I first grew up. Not like they forced discipline on us, but there was just that culture of like work ethic. You know, my mum my was an athlete. She you know, ran, did triathlons, all that sort of thing. So that was just sort of around. Yeah, that, and I remember, that inner belief. Yeah. Is in the air. Yeah. And that if you want something, you can work for it. And that at any point in life, you can decide and go and work for something, whatever it is that you want. Um, And they really didn't care what path we took whatsoever, but they always expected us to work hard. And that was just a given at whatever you did. So I I always was going to apply that to something. Yeah. Did you ever think about another path? Like, given that your parents were in the military, did you ever think about exploring the military yourself? I did. Yeah. I think if I hadn't have really had the opportunity to climb Everest, probably would have joined the military um, instead of completing high school, to be honest, because I struggled so much. I I actually remember around the time I was looking at Everest, I was in grade 10 and I was sort of towards the end of grade 10 and just didn't see a future where I was that I was particularly excited about. And um, my mum was like, there's no way you're leaving school. And I said, well, (laughs) what if I had a career in the army? And then she went, okay, maybe. (laughs) So that might have been the opposite path that I took had I not gone down that road. But um, yeah, an opportunity like Everest, particularly at that age, doesn't come around every day. So (laughs) it's unbelievable. What I was wondering is like, because I watch Free Solo as well, and this is such a watching him, he's sort of on the spectrum a little bit. It allows him to be very introverted, almost very selfish with what he does. I'd imagine that would be quite difficult in terms of both the training and the event itself. Like, I might die. So if I don't see you again, I really enjoyed spending time with you. Have a nice life. And it's one thing for you to be okay with it. Yes. But when you're talking about the people in your life that care and love for you, that was the toughest part for me. I didn't, I wasn't so concerned about my own life because, like, I made this decision. I can be okay with it. The biggest thing I worried about was the effect on people at home. And that's the only time where I felt really selfish and I was like, should I be doing this? You know, I've got a younger brother who's autistic heavily um, and is cared for by our family. And I thought, he's not going to understand if I don't come home or, you know, so that was really tough for me. Um, and I remember my dad saying to me, yeah, but, you know, you get to do something that's your absolute passion in yeah. life and he doesn't get that chance. So, like, it's actually, it's kind of good that you're doing this. Um, do so guys, that sort of made me feel a little bit better, yeah. Yeah, do guys understand? Because I imagine, like, you know, you're on Tinder or you're on Hinge and you're matching and you go out for this first date and they're like, oh, so what did you do on the weekend? And you're like, <laughs> oh, you know, I just climbed Everest. And you're like, what did you do? And they're like, 
Yeah, so, you know, had a few beers with the boys. Cool. <laughs> She's pretty intimidating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know if I can stack up thing? to this chick. <laughs> yeah, look, I didn't date when I was training. Right. Like, I just didn't worry about it uh, because I did find relating was just too difficult. And mm. I just was like, it's too forced. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I am trying to you know, like my life is different um, and that's okay. So I just enjoyed the journey for what it was and I didn't force it. Um, like I'm very close with like my sister, but, you know, I wasn't really into dating or anything like that in, in high school. Yeah. And even now I just don't force it. You know, there's certain yeah. people I'll meet like through adventure and stuff like that. But, yeah, it's quite rare. I'm pretty happy to do my own thing. So Your social circle now, like are they people that kind of get what you're doing or like yeah. are there times when you kind of go – you know what, sister, get a goal, go out and do something, like want more for yourself, be more. Yeah, I I find that like I've got a good little small circle of a really broad range of people. So I've got some people that I know from where I grew up and my immediate family, but then, yeah, a lot of other people are just those who are like into the same thing or are very goal-oriented themselves so they kind of get it. Like, yeah, I've, I've found that a lot of people that I am close with is sort of from adventure and that sort of thing. Yeah. So goal setting process, because we're dealing with such a long period of time, yeah. how did you remain committed to the to the goal setting process? Yeah. So it kind of came about, I remember I, I was in high school and I had the opportunity to uh, go and climb Mount Kilimanjaro. So my dad already had a trip going um, and I was able to go. So we had like eight other Australian trekkers going with us and same sort of thing, like year lead up training and all of that sort of thing. Yeah. So it actually helped. It gave me a good focus when I did struggle to fit in in high school. It sort mm-hmm. of gave me that sense of purpose. And then it was actually on Kilimanjaro, I really started to think about, yeah, what the future was going to look like and where I go next and all that sort of thing. And I remember I got home and and said to my dad, what do you think about me climbing Mount Everest? (laughs) So we had that conversation and, you know, this is sort of just who he is. He didn't shut it down. Yeah. Um, like with Kokoda. He probably knew it was coming, right? <laughs> I don't think he was that <laughs> surprised. Um, but, yeah, I brought up the conversation and, like, usually said, okay, well, that's above anything I've done. Like, I'm not part of that world. High-altitude mm. mountaineering is a very niche-specific thing and it kind of takes a lot of years to break into. And so, you know, we'd been in and around adventure and I had this great base of, like, endurance and that, but this, you know, was on another level. Yeah. So he was like what does that entail? Like, as with every trip, you go and do your research on what you would have to do and what goes into it. And we'll see, I don't know if we can achieve this, but Mm. yeah, that was kind of the starting process to it. Um, So I knew the goal, but yeah, it was this mix of having those those goalposts, but then learning through the process. Um, So I had to really up my training. And I remember he was sort of trying to prepare me for worst case scenario. He's like, you got to look into frostbite and understand what you're actually up against. And he said, if you're okay with all the things that could go wrong, then, you know, let's do it. But Have you watched Everest, the movie? I actually haven't. I've seen snapshots oh. and I've I had a few people see it and ring me and go, what? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think they understood and they went, oh. what? And those ladders, the bits I have seen with the ladders, that's very realistic. It was like that section. Is, I watched it and it's yeah. one of those things like, you know, you watch something and you're like, yeah, fuck yeah, I want to do this. This would be awesome. And then you watch it and you see people climbing over dead people and then everyone's dying on the mountain and you're like, yes, yeah, so it no, just goes pear shaped really quickly. <laughs> yeah. And that's mountaineering. It can turn on a yeah. dime. Like you'd have beautiful days on Everest and the weather comes in like that and you can't see 
any more than a metre in front of you and things just change so quickly. So so you did your fitness training, but you must have done something very specific in terms of like survival type training, right? Yeah, absolutely. So basically there was, it's very tiered. So there's like the day to day, you've got to constantly be building up your physical capability. So that was part of it. It was a lot of similar to what I'd done when I was younger, but now it had to be more advanced. Yeah. A lot of running, pack marching was mm. a lot of that, a lot of hills. You've constantly got to be working at that. But then every so often you do have to have something that's you know, you're learning something new, the skill sets that you need. Um, So I had the opportunity to go and climb in New Zealand, which was kind of my intro to technical mountaineering. So I went and did a course over there where, you know, I'd I'd never done any of the actual skill sets. So it was quite confronting um, and had to learn everything from the gear, how to put your crampons on, the roping, all of that sort of thing. They ran us through all the basics. So that gives you an exposure to the weather Correct. Um, yeah. The amount of kit you need to carry, setting yep. up camp, like all those types of all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Living in the mountains and yeah. uh, you know just the the little details that come with that. You do learn. You know, is it called about you made die dot com. Yeah, <laughs> basically. Yeah, I think they advertise it a bit differently, <laughs> but they do. They literally like we'll do crevasse rescues. So. You're going down the crevasse and we've got to try and... Oh, my God. And it's, it's quite nerve-wracking too because actually the section we were climbing in in New Zealand has a lot of hidden crevasses. So you think it's solid ground and you could just oh. go through really quickly. So I was like, oh, God, I don't know if we're skilled enough yet to do that, but they, they really throw you into it. Um, but, yeah, well, we had a great guide and everything, but... You know, I'd done a lot of trekking, but I'd never done anything with the skills, so it was a lot to learn. Uh, but it was good because I came away from that trip with, like, understanding how involved this is yeah. and you have more of an idea of where you're at and what you need to learn. So um, it's good. I think you've got to have those bits in the process that kind of shock you a little bit Definitely. to make you realise what you're doing. Well, it's, it like, it's like grades in school, you know. You've, you're, yes. It's like this was like your school. Yes. It, you know, yeah, it passing actually. grades at the end of each one, you've got a test. If you're putting it into that attainable goal-setting process, it's just like going to school. Yeah. You know, you've got to pass certain things in order to become qualified. Absolutely. And you talk about this in terms of when you set out with the original crew that you were training with, you were quite surprised at how underprepared some people were. Yeah, I was a bit surprised. And you can get that a bit with the commercial climbing because it's really broad on Everest. Um, For them, like once you pay your permit and you're with someone from the government's perspective, you're good to go. And so it's totally up to the individual providers that you're with. Now, some of them have like, this is our standard a lot of them are quite good. Like they'll take small teams and they control it, but you'll get those couple of teams every year that just go, we've got whoever. And everyone's like, watch out for Free them. For yeah, so you get that. Um, and I do remember, yeah, I ended up changing over teams later on because I just wasn't confident with some of the people I was climbing with. Yeah, A lot of them hadn't been through anything like I had with the training process. I realised I was very fortunate to have the people that I had around me who were, like, trying to prepare me in the best way possible to avoid that. And, yeah, so I ended up changing over later on. Yeah. When I was in the training process and we began that and I was sort of chatting with my dad about, you know, who we would work with and that sort of thing, he had a friend um, who was in the SAS, uh, Keith Fennell, and he offered to do, you know, a weekend training camp with me. And the idea behind that was we wanted to have people that wouldn't dismiss me because I was a girl or because I was a teenager who would give me the same treatment and respect uh, and opportunity that they would any grown man. 
And that was really how we approached the climb. Um, And Keith was great with that. He just was like, I'm just going to see what you've got and give it everything you've got over this weekend and then I'll tell you what I think. Uh, And that was actually quite rare to find. Um, I found a lot of people, even in the mountaineering community, maybe had a bit of an ego around this teenage girl thinks she can do what we do sort of (laughs) thing. So I had to be very selective with who I surrounded myself with. Yeah, you didn't want anyone who would make an exception just because... No, you know, certain things or... Yeah, so either way, you don't want someone stopping you. Yeah. Um, but you also don't want someone, you know, sort of carving a path. Easy way. And I didn't want yes men around me because yeah. I knew I need to know now where I'm at because the last thing I want to do is find that out on the mountain mm. that I think I'm really great and, and then reality hits and you're not at the level you thought you were. So I was really surrounded by people who were respectful and wanted me to succeed, but they understood I had to confront these obstacles and they weren't going to get in the way of that. They were just going to give me, you know, the equal opportunity. And that's an awesome tool for life. Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. Yeah, not having yes people around and having people who challenge you to be your best. It's any wonder why you're such an extraordinary kind of person because of the people that you grew up around and, you know, the demographics (laughs) that you've grown up with and those sorts of things. So Absolutely, yeah. Like money can't buy that stuff. No, no, absolutely. Mm, Amazing. So you're hiking up eight or nine hours a day in the freezing cold and what I consider is like a big suit, very hard to get off. (laughs) It is. With guys, there's nowhere to go. You're (laughs) near a crevasse. I mean, do you go to the toilet in the crevasse? Like. What happens? You get really good at picking your moments. <laughs> All I will say is that, like, you just, you deal with it. Um, so in base camp and that, you've got options. There's, like, a tent. Yeah. You know, we've got our own separate area. But when you're up on the mountain, it gets harder and harder the higher Especially with are. the gear that you've got on. Yes, because, like, after camp two, you don't even have a sleeping bag at night. You're in it. So basically what you're wearing, that's what you've got for the next three, four days of climbing. So, so the down female... Like it is quite difficult. Sets of challenges. It does, and when you're at camp three, you're actually up on an ice wall. Like you're like locked into the side, so it gets just harder and harder. And who would hide anything? (laughs) I know. (laughs) (laughs) Bit more detail, please. Let's go. Yeah. So your options are bag or bottle on a mountain because you have to bring everything back down with you, and there's a certain way of doing that. Um, So we have these special like bags and bottles that you use. Um, But yeah, you just have to pick your moment. So you'll be like, you practically live in your tents. And so you can get out of the tent and, like, hang off to the side. And, yeah, you've just got to be careful about it. But, like, summit day, you've got to make sure you go before you start your summit push because, like, you're not going to stop for the whole night. So discomforts like that add up too, like, on top of your climbing. It's like having a pebble in your shoe. It is. That's extreme home, You're, like, everything's so easy. Like a zip zip in the underside of your pants. It would be nice, yeah. I think you need to have a discussion with Mountain Designs to add a little zip we in their need pants. To, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's talk about it. Perfect. Um, so you've climbed Everest essentially four times now. Yes. So you did, you did base camp yeah. twice. So you went the first time you went up, I believe 16 Sherpas were killed. Yes, correct. And then the second time you're at base camp, the Nepal earthquake. Yes. Was there ever a time where you kind of went, you know what, maybe this is God's way, universe's way of being like, you 
know what, girlfriend? I had a few family members that were, I think they wanted to hold an intervention. They were like, look, this is not a sign. Um, No, definitely. I remember thinking this thing just doesn't seem like it's going to happen and my whole future was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. So, yeah, that's the thing with Everest. You're just kind of doing what it wants and I was kind of living year to year just seeing what happens. But you you were in the avalanche and we talk about like obviously – being this podcast is like how fitness saved my life. We talk about it in a very literal sense here because it was your training that yes. allowed you to react so quickly when the avalanche hit. So talk us through that. We're talking seconds too. Seconds. Literally, yeah. Yeah. Literally seconds. So this was the second attempt. This was in 2015 and we'd done the trek to base camp. We'd probably been there for about a week acclimatising and I actually remember the very next day we were meant to start climbing and, uh, like, we're up at 2 o'clock in the morning, ready to go. And our head Sherpa, he was like, oh, we're going to delay it one more day. The, there was a lot of snowfall that season. And that makes the, that first section on the mountain, which is one of the most dangerous, even more unstable. So we are like, we'll wait another day. And a few hours later, it was about midday, the Nepal earthquake hit. And we were in base camp. And so that earthquake, you're surrounded by mountains and usually base camp's the safest place on the mountain because the distance is so wide. Um, So it's like compared to everything else, relatively flat. Um, And, yeah, this earthquake triggered a giant avalanche. And I've never seen anything like it. All of the mountains merged. They're like avalanches and it was like one giant – it's like what I imagined – feeling like a tsunami is coming yeah, at you. Like, like, but you are actually there yeah. seeing it coming at you. You're like, this is going to get me. Holy this is yeah. going to There's engulf like us. There's like that realisation in your head that like oh. this isn't stopping. Like it's getting bigger. So I remember I had lunch in the mess tent and then I was back in my personal tent when this happened and I could hear this really weird noise and it didn't process what it was at first. And I unzip the back of my tent and I look out and it's just white, like the whole thing. And literally, <laughs> literally within three seconds, that thing, and it was a long way away. Like it, it came through like nothing I've ever seen. It, it wasn't even close. And within three seconds, this wall of snow hit our base camp and just like gear destroyed everything. I got knocked over and then my tent just kept having snow piled up on top of it. And I'm thinking, this isn't stopping. Like, I'm not going to be able to get out of this. And I reverted back to my training literally in New Zealand when I first started training for Everest. They taught us that when you're in an avalanche, you need to create an air pocket. So basically that you buy yourself time so you can breathe if you're buried so that someone else can come and get you out. And it was just like instant reaction. I just went straight away. something seriously crazy to be said for the brain that yeah. so yeah. much can go through your mind yeah. in three seconds yeah. yeah, and that you're able to reflect back on what you've been taught yes, <laughs> and apply that to that current situation to save your life. Yeah. Like, and to I, me, this is crazy. I know. Same. You, always, yeah. you think about these situations and then you go, I hope that if this happened, Literally, I do this, yeah. this, 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 and this. What's the natural really know. You kind of revert back to just a reaction yeah. when, when it does happen. And, yeah, you do hope you'd react a certain way and you train thinking, oh, I'd handle this situation like that. Yes. But until it actually happens, you just don't. Well, then then you've, your brain is riddled with those thoughts, but then yep. you also have a combination of I'm sure you're thinking about people in your life. What, I don't know. You're having <laughs> like these flashes of life going at the same time gelled with your reaction thoughts. And yeah, it's like, yeah, and you're even still processing that this is happening. Like, you know, you're just oh, trying to take no. it all in. So, yeah, just reacted straight away. And I was very lucky that 
I was able to get out. So most of my tent had been destroyed, but the very f- front section with the zip was I was able to get out of it. <laughs> oh my gosh! Did so, you have to dig out at all? A little bit, yeah. yeah right. So I was half buried, but oh like half able to get out. This is terrifying. And then my first thought was, we need to find everybody else because what if they're buried? Yeah, and you know, what even if, if you create situation? an air pocket, you've got a few minutes maximum mm. before you're stuck in there. So, like, I'm going, where is everyone? And um, made sure our team was all safe and um, all of that. We were lucky that no one in our team was killed, but there were climbers killed in base camp that day. Yeah. We were so lucky just with at the location of our camp. I think if we had been any closer up, there's no way I would have gotten out of that. Or if your climb hadn't have been postponed a day. You know, you would have been up there, right? Yeah, if we had been in the ice fall, like that place got destroyed. Um, So actually there were climbers on the mountain who had climbed up a little bit earlier and they actually got stuck up on the mountain. So we had people stuck up there who couldn't get back down. We had us stuck in base camp and that sort of thing. Um, So, yeah, it was just crazy. And I remember not even being aware of how um, the country was affected at the time. So I had people satellite phoning me saying, well, this is how many have been killed in Kathmandu. And so then we became aware, like, how big this was. But we were quite isolated at the time. So Far out. Yeah. And even after that, so you've had these two extraordinary events happen (laughs) and then you still decided that, no, I'm definitely going to do it. I've started this journey. Yeah. I'm going to get to the top. So then you began for the actual, the third time. Yes. Yeah. So I went, I took a few months, like when I got home to sort of decompress from that <laughs> and go, like what just happened? It, it, you really spend a bit of time going like, wow, because those were in two consecutive seasons. They were the worst accidents in Everest history two years in a row. Like nothing like that had ever happened other than probably the 1996 season, which a lot of movies have been made about. But these are even bigger in terms of numbers. So did that apply any doubt in your mind, especially when they say bad things happen in threes? <laughs> You're like, if I go back for this third time, uh, what's going to happen? Like did that, uh, did that um, give you any doubt for you to go back and any fears and those types of things? Did you experience any PTSD? Like, like all of that type of stuff that happens after something when you've given it a period of time off. And how did you deal with that? Yeah. Yeah, you know what? Um, I did get back into, after a few months, like some fitness, not even with the intention of going back, just to, like, that's how I processed it. Um, I found that getting back into, like, physical training was actually cathartic, um, sort of helped me process it. Um, and yeah, I just put it on the back burner for a while. I decided, I I knew the ambition to climb Everest was still there, Mm. but Everything was up in question. So I just went, I'm not going to set any plans. I'll just see what happens um, and just hope to go back someday. I don't know when that opportunity will come back up. But I did have some, like, PTSD. Like, you'd yeah. hear certain noises, as weird as it sounds, like the dryer oh, going off. And you think it's an avalanche. Yeah. Like, I would literally go, oh, like, oh, no, I'm at home. Like, yeah. yeah. It's what it's your brain. Like you hear a rumbling and you go, what? what? Like, well, it's what your brain recognises as, yeah, you know, sounds the a same. traumatic so, situation. So it's incredible how it works Yeah, in your that mind sense. is like, hang on, like, yeah, you, you now see that as a hazard type And do you thing. still have that to this day? Do you still experience... Not so much. Okay. Um, not not as much now. I've been quite good with that, which I've been mm. been lucky to have. Some people do get. I remember when I did um, go back for my third um, attempt on Everest. They, you know, the team leader sat us all down and said, "You may have some effects." Like right. they were worried about because it's actually quite normal when you're living in base camp. You'll hear avalanches go off all yeah. the time, but they're not close to you. 
I just wouldn't um, be okay with it, you know? <laughs> you hear you hear rumbling and things like that in the middle of the night, like it's quite normal. Um, oh so God. they were worried. They were like, oh. But, yeah, that was definitely something they were concerned about because most of us had been there for that event the year before. And what do you, I mean, like you talk about physical training being sort of cathartic, but mm. in terms of like the accessories to that, because obviously you've got things like PTSD, mm. you know, self-doubt, fear. Yeah. What are the other tools that you use? Like was it, you know, did you meditate? Do you visualise? Like what are the sort of things or breathing exercises that you're in that moment to like sort of calm yourself or to refocus? Yeah, definitely breathing, I find. Um I don't have a particular exercise, but just being aware um, and being really conscious of your breath and things like that, particularly like even when I was actually in the avalanche and things like that, that helps calm everything down and helps you to go, all right, I just need to get this done or what actions do I need to take? So I do find that helps, but visualisation I'm big on and that's something that I always did quite naturally. Um, I found that because I had a trip coming up or something you just start to visualise what it's going to be like, you know, what to expect, good and bad. I find that your mind just starts to run through all the things that could happen. Yeah. What about um, like just like visualising yourself standing on the top of the world? Like Literally, yeah. yeah. I, I would go to bed at night and, and feel like I was there. Um, um, so wow. I completely relate to that. I'm so yeah. wired that way. I think I've done that since I've been a very young child. You yeah. Know, I was able to manifest things that mm. I thought I was a bit crazy, but I was able to manifest certain things <laughs> yes. because of the way I thought about them. Yeah. Because if yep. I wanted something, I just thought about it and I yeah. pictured myself in the situation. I experienced what it would feel like to to receive what I wanted and how it felt like totally. and those types of things. So I completely and utterly relate to that. Visualisation is such a powerful tool. Mm. And then, of course, you're coupling that with the breath work and, yep. you know, that it's just that mindfulness and that self-awareness that I think obviously is such a huge tool for somebody like yourself. Yeah, definitely. And it, it grounds you and I think yeah. you need that on the mountain as well because you're spending a lot of time with yourself. So yeah. you've got to get good at that and, you know, talking to yourself in a really positive way and, you know, just being on your own team effectively, particularly on Everest, you're coming up against obstacles all the time. So the more that you are grounded in yourself and you believe in yourself, yeah, you much have more to power have, you have. Like, you yeah. have to have that level of comfort of talking to yourself, right? You do, yeah. And like, you know, and that's we can get through this, have, and yeah. we can, yeah. Like, you, you've almost got to be a friend to yourself. You've got a mantra, don't you? My thing, and particularly when I was on <laughs> Everest, was I just kept saying to myself, "You've got this." Like, because I, I remember, like we were just talking about, I would think about this even when I was like, I was fascinated with Everest from the time I was like seven, mm. and it was something I didn't know anything about the details of it. I just heard about the highest mountain in the world and I was always fascinated by it. I'm going to climb that one day and that came along a lot earlier than I expected. But, you know, to then actually be there, like to, to say to myself, you've got this, like you're the person that can do this. You've done all this training, like, you know, you're, yeah, that, that was really powerful for me to Especially get through. Especially when you believe it. Yeah, absolutely. Especially yeah, when you believe it. Yeah, it's not just a it. thing I'm saying. I'm like, yes. I've got this. Yeah, so. 100%. That's Do you have a so mantra? Powerful. Discomfort equals growth is oh, my, always right. my mantra. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I know that I'm going to grow from the discomfort I put myself through and I purposely put myself in discomfort as much as I possibly can on You'd a daily basis. You'd be a great mountain climber. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I don't yeah. think so, but <laughs> <laughs> definitely not Same in the cold. Same sort of thing, though. Like it's cold. like having that yes. perspective that, you know, I'm, it, it's not that like, oh, I'm in pain. It's I'm gaining something from this. Oh, Every trip that definitely. I come back from, I'm so much stronger and I've learnt so much about myself as a person and that, for me, would override the discomfort. That's yeah. what it seems not that like. that I don't feel it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that's what it seems like you're driven by is yes, your yeah. internal reasons for doing 
these things are driven from the inside. Yeah, I am very intrinsically yeah. motivated. And my friend was laughing because I could have come back from Everest and he's like, you wouldn't tell anyone. I'm like, yeah, I'd, I'd just come back and go home. Um, just love the experience. You yeah. seem like a pr- very private person. Through all your successes, all of the media that your successes bring, you yeah. seem like such a private person. Is there a reason for that or is that how you've always been? Uh, always natural, yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, it's it's kind of both. Like I do love the opportunities that I've gotten to do and couldn't have imagined some of the projects I get to work on because of that. But, you know, that's really thanks to my dad. I wouldn't promote myself if he's like my biggest cheerleader. Yes. I'm like, I suck at it. But he's like, she's done this and that. And I'm like, whatever. Thank you, Dad. Yeah. Thank you, Dad. Um, but, yeah, no, it's it's good to have that to, like, balance you out because I wouldn't. Um, yeah. Naturally just very private. And I think, like, whenever I've had a goal, including right back to Kokoda, I'd spend a really long time like sort of working through my motivation and making sure that it is intrinsically motivated. Because I know if I have that, I'll go really far. Yes. But I like check in with myself and because I'm also quite stubborn. I'm like, am I doing it because they said I couldn't do it? Yeah, you've got to be doing it for the right reasons. I do. And that's what will sustain it. Even if like comments here and there that you're too young or this or that would like fire you up, that won't get you through those really tough days where you're on your own, you're in your own head and you're really questioning what you're doing. Um, I think you have to have like a really deep reason for being there purpose. Yeah. So you've got a book that's called Mm -hmm. The Girl Who Climbed Everest. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give people out there who might be struggling with motivation or commitment or finding their purpose? What advice would you give them? Yeah, look, there's probably a lot um, that I've sort of done over the years that contributed, you know, for me. I do think making sure that it is motivating to you. I think making sure that it is coming from you, um, that intrinsic motivation is is sustainable and that's really important. And yeah, setting goals and challenges for yourself and, and not being afraid to fail. Um, you know, I always threw myself into the process and, you know, with mountains, you have no idea what you're going to learn or how that's going to turn out. But yeah, when you understand that the process is its own reward and, and what you gain from that and what you become, um, I think I that's that. huge. Oh my gosh, yeah. you just gave me full body goosies. <laughs> I, know. I don't even wow. think we need any more than that. I think I know. the process is its own reward. And yep. I think you summed it up when you said, I didn't conquer Everest. I conquered myself. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I think that's such a great quote and very apt. You're an incredible soul. You are. You <laughs> Thank really you. are. Look, you're trekking up to the summit. You're literally going to stand on top of the world. What is next for you? Like what tops that out? I think this is something I struggled with because you are so consumed by what you're doing. You just don't think about after. Um, and then you get there and it's sort of, it's weird to have such a, big thing done. And this defined my identity from a really young age for a really long time. Like it became who I was. So I'm at the point now where I'm super comfortable with that being a part of my life and a part of my identity. And it always will be. But now moving forward, um, it's not all of me anymore because I, I now don't define myself by it. It's really interesting. And I love that. I, I mean, yeah. you don't even have to have an answer for that. It no, was just... yeah, it's uh, still still figuring out what yeah. that is. But I actually, I'm at the point in my life only just recently, I'd say where I, yeah, I'm not attached to putting like I'm doing this thing and that's who I am. So, yeah, in, in a really good place now with that. Um, but I love that that's part of my story and my oh journey. My God. And you've had so many amazing successes that why not yeah. take the time to enjoy what you've been able to achieve for yourself because you've put in all this hard work. Absolutely. And you absolutely <laughs> um, deserve a break. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Give yourself a rest. Look, we talk all the time about like 
how important your social circle is. And one of the reasons we wanted to do this podcast was to be around extraordinary people because when you're around extraordinary people, you want to do extraordinary things. So I just want to say thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your journey, all the things that you've learnt. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm inspired just by sitting here and now, you know, I might not go climb Everest, but I'll find my own Everest. No, I've definitely got got the bug. I would love to be able to talk. Yes. (laughs) I would love to be able to do just that and talk to you and come in and you know, experience something with you, even if it is just like oh, there's a little so many hill. Cool things. Let's go yeah. hit a little hill we'll go and, and do it. try doing some altitude stuff, or you know, like let's do something together because I've got I the actually think, Yeah, it's like a play even date. doing yeah. something like date. base camp. I yeah. remember taking a group. I'd climbed Everest, and it was uh, probably a year later, and I took a group. Um, I'm coming. Just people experiencing altitude, they're like, oh my god. <laughs> so, so if people if people want to get in touch with you, they want to find out yeah. what you're doing, how they can get involved. What is the best way to do that? Um, look, there'll be a new website up soon. Um, yep. So that's just being revamped and developed at the moment. That'll just be alissarazar.com.au um, and everything will be there to get in contact. You heard Amazing. it here first, folks. Uh, <laughs> I'll beat you to the uh, start line <laughs> there. I'll be her first customer. <laughs> I'm coming on in red hot, sister. Look out. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been such a pleasure. You're an absolute unique human breed. I don't know where you've come from, but (laughs) (laughs) it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. So thank you so much for joining us. All right. Thank you. Namaste. (laughs) How Fitness Saved My Life is hosted by me, Action Alexa. And me, Jenna Louise. Producer, Tina Madelov. Audio production by Nikki Sitch. And executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. 